0: Welcome to the Empire's New Clothes. This is the show where we discuss the forces that make and break empires. I'm your host, Bradford MacArthur. Today we're going to be speaking with Carrie Day. She's an associate professor at Princeton. She spent a lot of time thinking and writing about the myth of progress. So this idea of are we moving literally towards a better and more progressive society as Americans or are things a little more cyclical perhaps than we think? She's going to be also mixing in these ideas of morality and ethics within our socio-economic world that we all live in. So let's check it out. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing excellent, Bradford. How are you? Great.
0: That's wonderful. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Um, before we jump in the deep end here, would you mind explaining a little bit about your background and some of your work you've done at Princeton?
1: Uh, I am the Associate Professor of Constructive Theology and African-American Religion at Princeton Theological Seminary uh, in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, And specifically, uh, my intellectual and scholarly work has focused on um, the relationship between religion, politics, and economics. And more specifically, in looking at the intersections between all those three, it's been with an emphasis on attending to how uh, American, and by extension, global capitalism, has deeply affected vulnerable populations. Uh, specifically ethnically marginalized populations, as well as women and children. So that's sort of broadly what I do.
0: If you want to take this certain way, let me know. Yeah, um great. But I thought to start maybe with a bit of why is neoliberal economic, like that framework, why is it not working? And then we can kind of get into this idea of progress and then speak of
1: Sure. So if you mind, if if you don't mind, I just want to provide, I mean, maybe just like a, a one minute at the most, um, a Hit description me. of what
0: neoliberalism <laughs> is so yeah.
1: the audience will have an idea. So um uh, in summary, neoliberalism is a kind of ideology that political theorists, cultural theorists, people really within the humanities and the social sciences have been using maybe for the last three or four decades to talk about um, the uh, era of capitalism that we're in right now. Specifically, um, we're talking about American and global capitalism, its central features um by way of self-regulation a kind of rabid individualism that is given towards competition um, deregulation that we're seeing, uh, not just in this country but in places around the world, and in deregulating markets, uh, then it's then it's you know these policies are not really attentive um, to the fallout right of, of of markets themselves. So in other words, it's not attentive to the public welfare. That is how our poor workers, for example, or vulnerable populations, how are they affected, right, within market processes. Um, And so uh, this term neoliberalism has been used to describe this entire state of crisis. But I think it's important to know that the term itself neoliberalism um, is uh, essentially Ascribed to maybe in the 1960s and 70s, a group of Chicago school economists, the University mm-hmm. of Chicago, had a group of economists. Uh, Milton Frieden, Friedman is probably the most well known with his book *Capitalism and Freedom*. It was read within the po- within popular culture um, around the 70s and the 80s, and they understood themselves as sort of reviving and reclaiming classical. Economic liberalism. So we're here thinking like Adam Smith, right, uh, in his work surrounding his book, The Wealth of Nations. Um, and they understood themselves as reviving Adam Smith's work, and that is thinking about in order to have political freedoms, we must have economic freedoms. And in order to increase the wealth of a nation, we actually need um, unreg- unregulated, or really, I should say, deregulated markets, that markets have their own internal mechanisms for bringing balance as well as flourishing to a society in the creation of wealth if we will allow that to happen, which of course meant minimal policy, um, uh, a minimal policy uh, sort of reach in in relationship to markets. Um, So in some ways they saw that through this economic philosophy, we could not only secure economic freedom and wealth, we could secure political freedom, right? So political and economic freedom, they were intricately tied together for the Chicago School uh, economists that understood themselves, uh, again, reclaiming classical economic liberalism of Adam Smith. But I'll just note here, as someone, of course, that has taught a number of courses at Princeton on um, on uh, um, uh, religion and economics, that um, although they understand themselves as reclaiming sort of Adam Smith's version of classical economic uh, liberalism, in fact, um, you can turn to Adam Smith's work himself, like before he writes The Wealth of Nations, he writes a theory of moral sentiments as a moral philosopher. And he doesn't understand economics merely as sort of the science, uh, you know, sort of the, uh, the the science or the area, of the discourse of a sort of value neutral exchange of goods and services. But he actually referred to it, like most people writing on economics, as political economy, and that's a really important phrase there, because the political economy is sort of um, communicates the idea that economic outcomes and projects are always related to the kind of political interests, agendas, as well as political virtues that are informing and shaping us, not only as individuals, but as a citizenry, right? So at least for Adam Smith, the question of economics is just not a sort of value-neutral question about profit and wealth. For Adam Smith, at the core of any efficient and effective market system is the question of virtues. Who should, How should we behave as a society towards each other? What kind of virtues do we need uh, in order to secure the common good? Right? These, are the, these are the sorts of questions, at least that Lisa Adam Smith um, certainly considered within his work. And, and, I'm, and when I say his work, his corpus, before he writes The Wealth of Nations, um, that somehow it's left behind. Uh, in the Chicago School of Economics, so I'm sorry I took all of this time, but I really wanted to, um, I wanted to be clear what sort of neoliberalism is, um, um, uh, but like sort of philosophically speaking, how it's been used in distorted and and, and wrong ways. Um, So that's neoliberalism, but you asked the question. uh, I'm so sorry, it's almost like I I got lost. No, no,
0: this is perfect, and actually, you, you know, you touched on so many great points, and before we even jump into why is it broken, could you, um, and, and you did touch on some of these things, but in kind of perhaps a, a summary, because you were bringing this up to speed, what are some good parts about huh. um, neoliberal economics? And, you know, if, if you could present the case in in the strongest form that they would want to present it, what's good about it before we tear yeah. down <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what I would say, um, for me, I mean, so so for me, the way that I use neoliberalism is actually to speak to the flaws, sort of how neoliberalism has uh, become a kind, has sort of set the terms, the moral terms of our basic existence. So if I could, I mean, so to the question, what has been right, in this case, I would use a language of Global political economy. I don't know if I would, if I would make the argument, at least for me, um, uh, that what are some of the possibilities of neoliberalism? Um, because to be honest, Chicago School economists—they um, really, you know—they did not self-identify or name themselves as neoliberals. It sort of has been those political theorists, religious scholars, cultural theorists that have really looked at the over sort of the way in which their um, philosophy has over encroached uh, on all of moral existence. It's sort of been termed neoliberalism. Mm. So I probably should have included that as well. But I think that some of the possibilities, some of the, the virtues one could say, of global political economy and global economics right now, one could say globalization, that's another term that one could use, is, um, for example, the interconnectivity, how it has connected the world together in ways that we could not have fathomed, right? And that is absolutely related not only to sort of information technology, but to like economy, right, literally, um, to markets that, you know, within the last three or four decades that have emerged, that have um, enabled the technological revolution, which has spurred sort of the information revolution, right? Mm-hmm. That's that connected us in profound ways. I can be in conversation with scholars in Asia, in Africa in mere seconds, right? Um, sharing knowledge in ways that we could not do four or five decades ago, because there's greater connectivity um, through, uh, through uh, this, the, the information age, so to speak. I think another, uh, I would say, possibility uh, of global uh, political economy or globalization um, really has been um, as well. And this is a really tricky conversation here. I would say, for example, within the United States, no one can disagree that in the 60s, 70s and 80s, there was a sort of increasing um, of the of middle-class America, right? So there's there's a way in which there's no doubt that GDP um, was rising, was exploding. Um, there were opportunities in different, and now the question of uh, opportunities for whom is another question, but there were generally opportunities uh, for people. Uh, particularly in, uh, in terms of class mobility. But see here, part of the contradiction in what I'm saying right now is as um, there was an increase in middle-class America, we also saw an increase in various what uh, many sociologists refer to as underclasses. Mm-hmm. Um, that is uh, groups of people, communities that are either unemployed or underemployed. And what marks them are these continual cycles of deprivation that are intergenerational, right? So part of the contradiction is that, but but in in some ways it is a possibility, but it's a kind of contradictory possibility, is that with the rise of market forces, of globalization, of global political economy, you see a, a, a relative rise, particularly in the United States and in other industrialized nations, of a growing middle class. But that in some ways is simultaneously eclipsed Hmm. by more and more people who, um, whether it's, uh, you know, an absence of a living wage that's underemployed, whether they're unemployed, whether they don't have basic cultural or social resources in the poor neighborhoods that they're a part of. We see a growing underclass, right, a growing level of economic marginalization precisely at the time that we're seeing an increase, relatively speaking, uh, with a growing middle class. So I think that that's another second possibility of globalization, but we also see simultaneously that it it, it came right with these profound contradictions and problems. Um, so I mean, at least I think that those are two one can name, and I'll say maybe the third one, and I'll stop here, has been a, a revolution, I would say, in education, actually. Hmm. I mean, I, I think that um, with uh, globalization or, or global political economy, of course, this is not in all parts of the world. For example, the global south. This is, has not been the case. Um, but in uh, a number of industrialized countries, um, with a growing globalization and global political economy, there, there uh, um, over the last several decades, there's been sort of growing opportunities for education uh, in multiple ways and multiple venues. So it's just not the traditional right, a model of education that is going uh, to college, university, or in a classroom setting, but through all different kinds of uh, virtual and online platforms. Um, So, of course, education now becomes more accessible to particular communities, perhaps, that um, that, uh, might not have had access. And I'll give you one example. my area is in the field of religion and more specifically in theological education and over the last several decades in the field of religion and theological education there's been an explosion well well i should say relatively again there's been an increased explosion of access educational access to getting a theological degree mm-hmm. and this is not just in the uh, uh, uh industrialized worlds Um, But also in the global south where, you know, you have schools that are partnering with small institutes in places around the world and they're actually bringing um, these educational materials to uh, areas that, you know, if, again, um, technology and this information era um, were not present, it would not be possible. So I think those three things. Um, it's has it's really been a boon. It's it, you know it's really been a blessing, so to speak, um, for what we're able to do and be within a globalized economy. Globalized economy. <clears throat> Just why I couldn't put neoliberalism in there because I, I think of neoliberalism as a profound problematizing of global political economy.
0: Okay, interesting.
1: That's probably a, 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 a clear way for me to say.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah no, that that. Um are you able to lay out a few of those, kind of the the main
1: or? Uh, So I would say the first uh, sort of problem, uh, I think associated with neoliberalism, and this is really important, is that how we think about who we are as moral agents and moral beings, all of that is defined by the market imperative. That's the first one. Uh, So so then who we are as moral agents, it is essentially uh, reduced to how we have been formed and shaped as human beings within capitalist context. So, for example, competition is a value, right? So we're, you know, we're, all, you know, we're reshaped uh, within the context of being highly competitive. Another value is everything is commodified. We ourselves uh, sort of present ourselves as commodities. I'll give one example. Whether we're talking about uh, on um, uh, the job market or whether, like even in dating, right? Like dating apps and sites, you know, where, if, you, if I can give a fun example, where if you're filling out a you know, on a dating app, a site online, you're filling something out. It's about these key things that are, that best represents who you are, right? Whether it's your vocation or how much money you make or the high level of education that you have. And of course, what you're also doing is you're filling out what, you know ideally you want from your spouse whether that's you know master's degree with that whether that's a certain level of income so that in some ways uh there's a commodification right of who we are as individuals we are the commodity that's being sold on the market in this case of the dating app or in this case of um of the job market i mean so to the first thing going back to the first uh example i gave um that You know, one uh, problem that neoliberalism points to uh, in some ways is how, again, the market forms us as moral agents, as human beings, and it defines the terms of our very existence. So I would say that's the first thing. Um, I think second, uh, neoliberalism really points to the problem of not attending to the public welfare and the common good. As not only a governmental duty, but the duty we have as citizens to think about this question, right? So, so to the second point, um, neoliberalism, because it, you know, it is focused on um, the quid pro quo, right? That is the exchange that um, either a company or an individual is um, um, uh, participating in. Um, that, in some ways know, it is about the bottom line. It is about profit, right? It is about what can we make for whatever product or whatever service that that we're offering. And if profit is the bottom line, then it becomes, especially for companies and corporations, if shareholder uh, value, shareholder profit is the central ethical obligation. I mean, you hear, I'm sure, a hedge fund Fund managers and other corporate and CEO persons that are like my primary ethical obligation as a CEO is to meet shareholder demand. You know that's part of what we do. So that if that's the central ethical obligation, it becomes really, really difficult to make an argument as to why certain uh, um, issues that surround the public welfare are of equal importance in talking about the common good for a corporation or for a community or for a society. And let me give an example. You know, many uh, environmental activists have talked, and, and ecological activists have talked extensively, and I agree with them, about, you know, how corporations have been at the forefront of um, uh, of essentially, one could say polluting or maybe I should say participating in forms of environmental racism. You know, that is, the corporate practices that they have on how they deal with what they're doing um, um, often affects very poor communities, and we find that high levels of pollution, um, toxic chemicals that are dumped um, in the waters or in the areas of of, of poor communities, um, you know, this practice is present. Um, and so, you know, when you have these practices going on. It becomes really hard to make an argument that the corporation has a responsibility equally to profit to tending to the very communities that are being affected by their practices. Corporations just don't see that as a part of their ethical obligation because of how they envision, how they fundamentally define the moral enterprise of corporations. So I always like to tell folks, it's not that corporations don't speak about the moral category, it's that they have a very distorted view of what constitutes the ethical and the moral. Um, So I would say that neoliberalism, neoliberalism second really looks at, again, the problem is that capitalism has not been able to properly attend to the question of public welfare the question of the common good, which is critical to any conversation, of profit itself, right? Um, and then maybe a final thing that I will say about neoliberalism, and I mean, I've already sort of talked about it from the two points that I just gave, but the third one is that neoliberalism really points to the breakdown of, um, how do I say this, to the breakdown of um, healthy ways of being human. Um, And that is, you know, I think about during my grandmother's generation, uh, you know, when one got off work and especially on weekends, one knew one's neighbors, right? Uh, The neighborhood where you live, you knew your neighbors, you interacted with your neighbors. Um, You know, there's a way in which the, um, uh, the communal organizations or churches, um, that people were very participatory, active um, in these in in these social ties. One could say social and communal ties. But because neoliberalism privileges sort of you know uh, sort of uh, heavy competition and. Um, 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 and and really sort of participating in the life of attempting to secure profit or attempting to be successful according to market logic as an individual that it really again distorts and it really doesn't make possible maybe I should say that it, it has led to the t- deterioration of these kinds of communal and social ties, these kinds of networks um, there's a book called Deaths of Despair by a couple of economists here at Princeton. I think they're retired economists, but the title of the book is Deaths of Despair. And in this book, they document that um, really a growing class of folks who are not only impoverished, but who are experiencing high levels of alcoholism and drug abuse and suicide. Um, Increasingly, um, uh, these communities are poor, rural, white communities, um, and they give, for example, communities in Appalachia as a way of talking about this. But they term these suicides in particularly or these slow deaths that these, um, you know, previously working white class communities um, now push the uh, periphery and edges of society. Um, that are either doing are committing suicide are involved in the slow death of drug abuse or alcoholism they're referring to this as deaths of despair um, and to me this gets at what I'm talking about on this third point that sort of the deterioration right of these communal and social ties they document in this book that along with all these problems in poor poor white rural America it's been the absolute, decrease, I mean, steep decline of participation in, com, in in forms of communal life, such as churches and other fraternal organizations and societies within the community, a complete deterioration. A deterioration. So to my third and final point here, um, that neoliberalism, because it is such an intense focus on the individual, um, uh, that, that, you know, we miss these kinds of communal and social Um, uh, context that in the past have enabled individuals
0: to flourish. Hmm. That's interesting. I, Listening to, well, all your points fascinating, your last two point was how corporations are so focused on profits, they lose. Even looking at, okay, if I have a healthy environment around my area, perhaps in the long term, that's better for my corporation. I'm... I have no idea here I'm going on a limb but I'm sure there's lots of research to back that up that I mean it seems intuitive that if we have a healthy planet we have healthy economic systems going and 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 yet your third point about the person it sounds like basically the exact same thing just one's corporation one's personal when there's a personal breakdown of what's my social environment like, and, and the personal is so focused on the personal success, they forget or lose sight or have no motivation to be involved in that community around them. Much like the corporation has no motivation to be involved in anything but, and I never quite thought about how it's, it's really the same thing. It's just playing out ones on a scale of a corporation, ones on a which is so which is so fascinating and and seeing it like that as you explain you're able to really it is this that we have all to these deaths of despair for for some folks and many folks what, what one thing you mentioned I thought was very interesting you kind of um, the the subtext of our film the theme is that people are very self-focused what if they're more other focused we're very short-term focused what if we're more long and what you've kind of is if humanity is already has an inclination to be self-focused then this framework doubles down on that and it applies no uh tools to reassess and look at well actually how might i behave differently and and there's definitely no tools or limited tools to look at the other part of how can it be other focused? Are you able to touch on that a, a little bit at all?
1: Oh yes, I've, I've written quite a bit. Yeah, <laughs> you know, absolutely. As, as someone in the area of religion, quite uh-huh. uh, So this is this is an excellent excellent conversational question. Um, you know so one thing, uh, maybe I should clarify before talking a bit about just how I've written about that question of mm-hmm. other focus and what are, what are, you know, how should we be thinking? What are the, what are the tools, right? What are the conditions, ways of being in practices that can, that can help us as communities and as a society, right? Um, think in ways that, that feel counterintuitive <laughs> to, to what we're enmeshed in as a culture, right? Um, one thing I do want to say uh, briefly uh, about our previous conversation is that you're so right between the corporate and the personal, how you're the corporation, but you have, you have the individual that and they're both being formed in the same way, right? Um, one thing that I will say, uh, however, that is a difference, I would say, between Uh, sort of the corporation, the corporate world, and so many individuals within society, particularly those who are vulnerable, from vulnerable communities and populations, is that the corporation in many ways um, uh, practices sort of participates um, in this sort of, you know, rabid uh, competition, uh, and sort of this drive toward the bottom line of of profit as the primary ethical duty and responsibility. Uh, Primarily because Um, uh, you know, because the corporation is interested in reproducing money, reproducing capital, reproducing a profit. And and for me, that actually correlates to reproducing modes of power, right? Because you think about the 1%, you think about politics, you automatically sort of like my grandma used to say, but this is a common mantra. Okay. If you want to look at a political action, follow the money right so we're following the money here and so that with with every particular act at least politically even within a corporation um that you're always seeing behind that this need to maintain and sustain a certain sort of exercise of, of, of power because corporations they might not say this but corporations are very very involved in the political life of, of nations um which is somewhat different. Then so many uh, individuals. They're, nevertheless, we're formed in this kind of environment of rabid competition, uh, wanting to form ourselves as an enterprise, as a way to reach success. And, you know, the American dream, the house, the car, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That among vulnerable populations, they're formed in these ways by default because they're, you know, particular in particular moments, there are not alternative sort of, Uh, practices or modes of being that allow them to experience what I refer to as an otherwise community, a community that is not marked by rabid individualism and competition, but mutuality, sharing, giving, things like that. Um, That, I mean, at least part of what I've seen historically in reading about vulnerable populations and vulnerable communities is that a lot of times these are are values, whether they realize they're not, um, that. have been socialized into um, um, almost by default right Um, in that in that trying to think through alternative ways of being um, you know it's sort of like trying to break through a glass ceiling you know that is thick and you know that you know and 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 you don't have a ladder from the very beginning to climb all the way up to the top to even touch the ceiling Um, so and so here is you know if you can see I'm wanting to make a distinction between sort of the motivation, what motivates corporations, which is about this exercise of power along with money, and vulnerable populations, which is about trying to figure out how to survive and sometimes self-actualize um, when encountering multiple barriers, um, You know, which is, again, is, is not about the exercise of power in the kind of way that corporations, but rather is about exercising what it means to stay afloat and survive. So. I wanted to say that because I thought that that, that, was, that was really important. Yeah. Um, but in terms of what we can do, um, which is your question, um, this is what academics do all the time, right? This is why they cannot be talking heads because we will, you know, we have to nuance everything. <laughs> um, but, um, <laughs> but in terms of, um, you know, uh, how have various communities, you know, are there any examples of communities recently? In our contemporary society or historically that have really tried to challenge right what we're precisely talking about right now this kind of this kind of formation that distorts who we are as human beings underneath sort of market ideology um and to that i would say yes historically um there have been many communities i'm going to give an example of one uh, because i think it's, it's better instead of like abstractly talking about how do we abstractly, philosophically speaking, uh, uh, attend or, 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 or privilege the other? I, th- I think that that actually is not as um, helpful as asking, how have people already done it? And how are people doing it? Um, and, you know, uh, so, so one example that I've written about uh, has been, interestingly, the civil rights movement. Um, we tend to talk about the first iteration of the civil rights movement. And that was essentially through King, Ella Baker, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, Student Nonviolent Coordinated Committee, all these different groups, how they came together and they protested the racial, racially segregated laws of the day, which Jim Crow, right? And that is a huge part of the civil rights movement, right? But before King dies, King begins the process of really speaking out against not only militarism, but economic inequality, right? This became something that was an, uh, uh, an important focus of his in talking about economic injustice. And um, um, right before he dies, but of course, it doesn't transpire until after he dies, right before he dies, he begins to set plans into place um, for the poor people's campaign movement, right? I mean, this is poor people's campaign movement is often seen as something that is very much sort of separate and on its own it's really not seen as a central part of the civil rights movement hmm. um, and the poor people campaign poor people campaign's movement was really in the 1960s it was really about Uh, A community across racial affiliations, African Americans, you know, whites, you know, Jewish folks, across various religious uh, perspectives, including humanist perspectives, how would they articulate and think about together um, a community that took seriously within a capitalist society, that took seriously attending to the needs, to the cries of the poor, to the cries of vulnerable populations. Um, But I think it's important to note that the poor people campaign movement, it emerges out of a a community of people in the civil rights movement, people that were living together, eating together, um, living life together, um, putting their bodies on the line together, um, that they were already embodying uh, a, a community counter to the values of the market everything that we've been talking about related to the values of the market, rabbit competition, individualism, you know, uh, deeply uh, uh, absorbed in self-interest that, that again, we already see a community for years that are living and thinking and breathing and eating and putting their bodies and going to jail together, just doing all these different things together in community out of which emerges the poor people's campaign. Hmm.
0: So,
1: so for me, the question of given the, the, the self-interested nature of human human beings and of corporations and of groups and things like that, is it possible? I would say historically it is a possibility. Now the question is what made that movement able to do that? I think that's another question that we, we should attend to. Um, um, but, but, I, but I do think that you know, being attentive to the needs and concerns and the cries of others is, is something that absolutely I've written about something that we need to think about in relationship to um, what we're living through right now as a, like literally our, this COVID pandemic and massive unemployment and, and, and you know, and, and people uh, not really knowing, in the future uncertain, not really knowing what the next step will be for them economically. I mean, we're talking about basic issues of like hunger, like life and death. Um, um, That then I think retrieving, or I'd like to say redeeming, these uh, historical examples from the silenced sort of halls of history is really, really important. And I think the civil rights movement is one example of turning to, in this case, how communities really attended to questions of, uh, of, of, of economic justice for those. In-
0: what I heard a lot of there, I'm going to summarize it here, is that our current system is very good at growing the pie. It's not good at sharing. It's not good at creating this foundation in order for something like that to come out of and flourish. That's right. It it, right. it seemed like that was a very unique movement that came out um framework operating within the parent framework, which was opposite and opposed to it. And it seems like as long as that dynamics there, it can't those things can't last forever. the The, the overarching framework needs to be supportive of. That's right. In what what do you think would be that more help? Um, either taking parts of this one, or does it need to be, com- you know, best case scenario, completely washed, this, <clears throat> this this new, our better one or whatnot?
1: I think the framework that we're operating operating with right now, I mean, again, this just set such a, 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 a deep and intense focus on the success of the individual, um, you know, which translates into the success of the corporation, which translate, you know, the success of, of the individual. Uh, I just don't think that that's a sustainable paradigm. Um, and of course, again, I brought it up once, but this is most uh, sort of uh, 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 realized in the idea of the American dream, you know, and that is, I mean, people talk about this all the time, that I get up and I go to work, I do what I do because I am I am attempting to secure for myself and my immediate family, the American dream, you know? Um, and so I think that, you know, this idea, for example, of the American dream, and it's not that, you know, it's not that people shouldn't want nice things. I mean, that's not the argument, right? It's not that we all want to flourish, we all want to thrive, um, but it's, it's the question of in making a claim like that and having that at the forefront of one's mind on, on the purpose of one's existence, it doesn't really make sufficient room for the kinds of questions that we're asking about mutual care, basically. Um, and so I think that the paradigm that we have right now, which is a kind of zero sum capitalism, it's a winner take all capital, capitalism, right? Winner takes all. Um, and so, for winner takes all, we're not attentive to how it's deeply affected the losers in any system. in this case, a capitalist system. So I think because we're in a zero-sum sort of capitalism, winner takes all, and because uh, we're focused on individual success, it's not a sustainable paradigm. I think that you know part of what we will have to do as individuals, because it's you know it's, it's so we can talk about meta level that's really important, but I think that many people listening, they feel really overwhelmed by conversations of the meta, you know, like, like, you know, we structurally, we need to revamp, you know, public, public policies surrounding X, Y, and Z. We do need to do that. There's no doubt. But the question of what, how can I, how can I as an individual contribute to, to, to rethinking and, and including and centering others? And I think that, There are many ways that individuals can do that. I think the first thing is really asking within your own life, um, you know, what ideas, you know, really guide and shape my actions and practices. Right. I mean, so at a very basic level. Right. Um, And and, and how how am I, you know, the communities that I'm a part of, whether they're churches or fraternal organizations or or what the social organizations, whatever they are. The context that I'm a part of, how are they attending to this question of care for others, right? The needs of others. Um, and, and I would say that sometimes people are unable to do that because they fundamentally think that, you know, attending to oneself and one's family is the duty, uh, is our duty, you know? Um, but, but it really is, at, and, and I think a part of that asking, what are the organizations I'm a part of? How are they attending to those? Uh, who are in need myself, it actually means then if I'm going to ask these questions of myself, I actually have to make myself vulnerable and learn something about other communities who are suffering. This is, I think that all that I've just said hinges on this point. I think that, um, you know, especially middle class America, like we don't want to get ourselves dirty like that. We definitely don't want to get ourselves dirty, our children dirty. In that kind of way, because we want to we want to articulate the pristine ideal, you know, image of America, you know, as a way to keep them encouraged, as a way to keep ourselves encouraged for numerous reasons. Um, but what does it mean to really humble? ourselves, particularly those that are in well-to-do populations, and especially, I would say, white communities, because historically, disproportionately, the question of economic and social injustices, um, these sorts of questions and issues, you know, these sorts of issues have fallen squarely, disproportionately, on the lives and bodies of people of color. And more specifically, I would say women of color, who are the primary caretakers of children globally. Um, and so it's, it's really asking how, how, what, how can I learn something from communities, you know, who are suffering? And and, and there are many ways to do that. Sometimes it's readings, you know, uh, often it's actually somehow finding ways to interact with those communities. I feel like even though there's, we don't have legal segregation, America is still very segregated across many lines, right? So, so I mean, f- f- again, for me, I think on an individual level, there are courageous steps that we can take. I mean, morally courageous steps that, that we can take as we talk about the big picture meta questions of what we need to do, that we can do. But it really does mean that we'll have to exercise individuals. We'll have to exercise moral courage. We'll have to divest ourselves of things we've been taught from our families about why poverty exists, or why you know this, this uh, why inequality exists, uh, and say actually what what's really happening, what has happened, and that means one has to truly be open to the stories, the narratives uh, of others, of those who are suffering and have, have been affected. So, you know, I, I, for me, that would be my my plea to individuals is is to really be courageous in these kinds of ways as a way to begin turning the paradigm, making the paradigm shift, because public policy does it, but I also believe that individuals and communities, we do it. Um, so I think I think that would be an important thing. Hmm.
0: I love that. In the most basic ways, just being interested about someone else besides yourself as right, a right. great way to start. And someone that's different from you, right? Someone yeah, exactly. That makes you uncomfortable. Exactly. <laughs> So, so yeah, exactly. Something you're se- second guessing on. Right. <clears throat> so, bringing it to the progress, um, and and that question I posed to you earlier: society believes in this idea of progress. Are they less likely to look at errors of the past because they've progressed past the uh, likelihood of making you know such mistakes? Do how do how do you see that?
1: Yeah, uh, I think it's absolutely the case that um, when you essentially see um, history as a kind of linear movement towards progress, right? So in this case, it's a straight line; it gets better and better and better and better and better, right? Um, that that then anything that contradicts that narrative, that linear narrative of it of it getting better and better, is seen as an anomaly, right? It's seen as Sort of a a small hiccup that we we that that we don't know why we don't know why that happened or why it exists, but we're just interested in getting back you know getting back to this clean narrative. It's not it's not central. It's just a hiccup. It's an, an anomaly. And um, so so first to your question, I think that it is hard to see the errors when you have this cultural narrative that essentially. Um, we are on the trajectory or on the road, this march towards progress. Um, and, and and let me give an example of how it's affected specifically the United States. I mean, let's just take, for example, the cultural narrative that we've been given since we were children, you know, in, in, in primary and secondary education. That America is a land of freedom and opportunity uh, and justice for all. Uh, in that the way history is taught, American history, that it has... Um, uh, moved in a progressive way, right? It begins sort of with slavery, you know, and then you have Jim Crow, and then, you know, we're liberated from Jim Crow, and we now live in a post-racial society. It is. That's, that's what we learn in, in American history. That's how it's taught. And, and that's that, you know? So now you go and you live in this post-racial way and don't talk about racism because it doesn't exist or it exists minimally in, in, in certain people's hearts, but they're not really the majority um and so you know again this is why i think why just knowing history really really matters because for example uh um after slavery during reconstruction this would have been like in the 1880s you know through the beginning of the 1900s uh the period of reconstruction you had the your first black senators after emancipation proclamation you know you had your first black senators and congressional figures you had the building of small black businesses um, uh, in just certain cities around the nation that were beginning to flourish. Um, You had all these sort of different, in in the wake of Emancipation Proclamation, all of these beginning moments, right, of, of, of possibility for black communities after their, their history of, of, of enslavement. And what's interesting is that when you look at, you know, the, some of the, the pamphlets and the manifestos uh, that are being written, really the archive, like what are people saying about this period? And that is African-Americans and whites who are abolitionists, who were abolitionists. Um, what you find is that they, they you know, they're, they have a healthy suspicion, but they feel possibility, many of them. They had no idea that what sort of by the time the 1900s, the 20th century pulled around, you would have Plessy versus Ferguson, that would essentially institute a new form of slavery, a neo-slavery, uh, in the form of Jim Crow laws, um, that would essentially um, uh, that would essentially you know uh, uh, recycle rationalities and really theologies surrounding moral permissibility of 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 racial oppression um among blacks that, that that they couldn't have uh they could have anticipated that this would happen right um and so then you have that you have jim crow jim crow ends but i mean you read the work of sociologists and legal scholars such as michelle alexander and the new jim crow and you see that i mean much of um sort of the race, racially based structures that we, we see, we saw in the old forms of Jim Crow have now been sort of transposed and sort of reformed in terms of mass incarceration, right? And, and the forms of, the new forms of slavery connected to black bodies and really brown bodies, that is Mexican Latinx people as well, um, in the prison industrial system right so 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 the point here is that is that American history actually shows that it's been cyclical and actually that the foundation of this country it's built on profound inequality racial inequality class inequality right that that constitutional rights uh, among the founders it wasn't for everyone even though the Constitution stipulated that it was for property men. White property men, which even meant that poor white men did not have voting rights as such, right? Because the founders, they were suspicious of everyday people. Mm-hmm. Everyday people couldn't be trusted to make the right kinds of decisions about the future of a nation. So, so the point here, uh, you know, is that um, um, uh, it does affect our ability to see the errors not only uh, uh, previously, that is historically, but now. We're unable to see how we are we are still living through the lingering effects of slavery, of racial disparities that are present right now, that are legacies of slavery. But we're unable to see that, right? Because we essentially have been spoon fed from the time we were young in school systems and in other American political institutions that essentially America has been uh, about Progress and it has evolved um, in ways that have gotten, become that have that are more equal, more equitable, and and, and better. Um, so, so I think that that's why it's it is really really important. As you can see, even though I'm a religious scholar, I'm equally a historian. I mean, for, me, for me, for me, history is is sort of you know equal <clears throat> historical awareness because we tend to repeat history, um, uh, and, and and so I think that. Getting people to really, and then there are some, I'll, I'll say this in the end, there are some communities that don't know the history, granted. But then there are some that that, that either do or they have opportunities to learn, but there's a resistance. Because the question becomes, once I learn this history, what claim does it make upon me to morally act? Right. That, that, that's a very, it's a very real question. And I think that for, if we're talking about, for example, structural racism, for uh, um, white communities, a number of white communities to really, or you know, uh, elite uh, um, upper-class rich communities, you know, whether it's race with white communities or whether it's with rich communities, to really now open yourself up to learning about the history and the lingering effects of these histories it means that it actually makes a claim upon you to morally respond in ways that um, uh, might lead you to recognize your own contradictions and inconsistencies, your own complicity in in the problem. In this case of structural racism or class inequality or whatever. Um, So so to me, these are the stakes. Sometimes it's not knowing, but other times it's being fearful of what is on the other side, by way of what I need to do
0: once I know. And and, and I can appreciate someone feeling that, you know, being be, being a bit worried about jumping in the deep end. But yeah, I absolutely believe it it should be done, but that doesn't mean that everyone's going to do it. Um, in the in the when you when you started in the beginning, you said a phrase I really loved, um, and how you were saying it's if someone, if society or a person has this narrative of progress, then errors or mistakes of the past, they're they're these outliers, and so if something's an outlier, it has no has no reason to speak to the narrative of why we need to ask this question and say, oh well perhaps I need to think about this outlier. How might that reassess my narrative as opposed to just kind of isolating it, cutting it off, being like, well, that, that I don't under... I was speaking with um, um cogn- neurocognitive researcher Tally Sherat, and she does a lot with uh, confirmation bias and all the different biases, and, and she brought up the example of the Holocaust. She's like, you know, we have this big... Uh, you could call it stain history where we exterminated maybe not we, but humanity in a sense is because humans are capable of lots. You know, you could put lots of other people in that situation. We've done similar things. Lots of people don't believe that, but it's true. Exactly. In the right situation, I could have been there doing that, you know? And so we look back at that and we're like, well, I don't that. But, and I definitely, And, and so I think that's a real... Kind of a package response, I suppose. But what is the danger of taking real history, real people, real... ...narrative, and and just keeping on the one you appreciate or you want or society kind of encourages? What What's the danger in that? Yeah, the, the, uh,
1: one sentence, really. The danger of... I'm challenging myself here. The danger of cutting off these quote-unquote isolated uh, incidents events that have happened like slave and Jim Crow and you know these sorts of things off from the cultural narrative of what who and what America is um, is that we risk today repeating these same issues, events, horrific atrocities, actions and when I say we so that's my sentence we risk repeating the same, uh um um um, uh uh sort of atrocities or 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 just horrific events that we see in history we risk repeating those um and and i think that this is a, a really important um acknowledgement because what it acknowledges is that somehow we are not superhuman we don't stand over a previous generation um um with some sort of higher moral compass right um each generation has to wrestle down its own demons, its own social, cultural, and economic inconsistencies and contradictions and injustices. And each generation has its blind spots, each generation. And so the problem with cutting it off these incidents off from the the, the larger narrative and and, and thinking of these events as irrelevant is that it doesn't allow us to learn the lessons from the past. But I feel that the past and these events being a part of narrating who we are, precisely it teaches us who we are as an American nation. So it's not the case that slavery is something cut off that happened back then, back there, you know on oh, that was them but it is the case that it forms and constitutes as a nation who we are where we have been what are the lingering effects of that and how do we move forward right so and and, and and we're able to learn lessons from what what has been right so so i think i think that that is the central danger is that we are unable to learn the lessons from the past and so we risk
0: That's perfect. <laughs> I love that. I work at this. Yeah, well, well well you're good at it when when you put the effort and I really appreciate it. That was perfect. You know, and and that and this sounds so simple, but you had me thinking as as you're speaking just then everyone in some way knows that we repeat history as collective humanity and everyone jokes about that. Well, you just, you know, we never learn from our mistakes. And perhaps this is like one of the core reasons we think too highly of ourselves.
1: Yes.
0: We we do put ourselves on a pedestal over past generations right. and so perhaps it's not about learning more about history so that you don't repeat them it's more about resetting where do you position yourself mentally over past generations so right. if i put myself on the same field or even below then i'm just going to be anxious i'm going to desire to learn about those things because they talk directly about my
1: life mm-hmm.
0: It sounds so simple to, but I never never thought about it so quite hard. that way.
1: It, it's so hard because I personally think it, it requires two things. I've sort of mentioned them. It requires first a kind of intellectual, um, uh, even like spiritual, and I mean spiritual in the broadest sense of the term. At spiritual as just human beings living a human life, that um, it involves intellectual and spiritual humility. Humility and humility is like not necessarily an easy thing, you know, like, uh, but humility about our own ideas about who we are, right? Like that moral high ground that you were talking about. So, I, you know, I think that it involves that, that kind of humility. And then second, once you have that humility, you can have humility about the inadequacies of your, of, 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 of your ideas about what is, about the past or what has happened. But as you said, um, in, 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 in a kind of a roundabout way, um, It's really it really doesn't mean much if it doesn't come with a repositioning, as you said, a repositioning oneself in relationship to to other generations. And for me, that's about having moral courage. It takes real moral courage, right, to not only have a humility about oneself, that is a generation have humility about about, you know, uh, what has happened and what is still needed. But then you have to act on that. And that's moral courage. It, it means that it might mean that you have to, depending on what group, say if you're a part of a group that exercises real power, it means divesting and sharing some of that power, right? Um, but divesting and sharing some of that power means that there are some losses, real losses. I mean, it may be like good losses, but losses, loss, you know, losses that you're gonna have to incur, right? Interest that you're gonna have to bracket as a way to make room for others um and so in my opinion there is there's a real moral it it sounds easy but there's a real kind of there's a there's a a our moral constitution has to be really strong in order to do this right which in my opinion like means you know we were talking earlier about being formed in a certain way being formed to think about me myself and i this, this individualism. It means literally also that there's a new formation that needs to take place, right? That we have to be sort of, that's to be a transformation of the way we are formed as human beings within this modern society. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's you're right, it sounds easy, but it's it's moral courage. And, and to do that, it means the, the reforming of an entire generation, because I hate to say it, let's face it, many of us, most of us have been formed in very, Narrow ways. Not m- many of us, I should, I should say, have been formed. Even those of us that do philanthropic and, you know, fight for social justice and, and we're a part of movement building. Um, you know, I love this. Even within various movements, there are still conversations, right, about making sure the movement is not becoming too narcissistic. I mean, you know, in its own, among its own uh, followers or, or members. Um, to make sure that power is being shared, to make sure that it is reciprocal and mutual. So, so yeah, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's a question of humility, moral courage, and seeking to reform a generation in this direction.
0: Mm-hmm. I think this is a great way to end it. I um, yeah. feel like I took you a little over time. I'm sorry about that. Okay.
1: That's a, well, you had to because, again, as an academic, you're using <laughs> Really, you're used to being inside of a classroom and lecturing so It's what makes you long-winded. So the great, no, really it does. So the great thing about the this is why I really want to say, the great thing about this is it keeps at the forefront of a professor's mind and communicating with students. How do I, I mean, when I write something in terms of my lecture, it's more succinct because I've written about it. But if I'm off cuff, uh, like the question and answer period, um, it's, it's thinking through how can I become more succinct, and therefore, clear, you know, as as a communicator. So this was no, no. I think I thought you did excellent, given my tendencies to ramble.
0: So no, good. no, I appreciate <laughs> it. I, I, I'm the same way. I could spend an hour writing signs you maybe read over, but but then when I'm speaking, it's like it's like that. It's horrible. That's why I film other people so that they can. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: hilarious. That's hilarious
0: right? <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Bradford. Great. Have a good rest of your day. I really appreciate it.
1: Okay, absolutely. You too. Look forward to hearing uh, in
0: the future. Here at the Empire's New Clothes, we believe something big is in America's future, but we don't quite know what. If you'd like to continue the journey with us, like, subscribe, and let us know who you want us to interview next in the comments below. This next decade is going to be crazy, so join us as we try to figure out what's going on, and I look forward to seeing you next
1: week.